coming here this morning, I was uh, flashback. I used to uh, I used to be here years and years ago. I won't say when, but uh, probably most of you weren't alive when I was here. Um, I can remember being in a lecture theatre very much like this and all of a sudden hearing people laughing and it was from a distance because I'd actually fallen asleep on the desk and I lifted my head up and I'd obviously been snoring and dribbling at the same time. <laughs> and it was a physics lecture and, um, and it can do it to you, you know, it's, it's easy to, to, to happen and so suddenly I'm there and you're confronted with a situation, what do you do in a situation like that? Well there's only one thing to do, I stood up and walked out because that was the only thing I could really do. Now, one of the things about being a pastor that's unique for everybody else, it may be that you speak in your sleep but I speak in other people's sleep. Uh, we can send people to sleep but I hope I won't do that with you today. We're going to talk about spirituality. Now, Last week we did the general theory of spirituality and what I tried to sketch out for you was that when we think about spirituality we've got to be very careful that we don't try and get into the details and into the techniques too quickly. If we do do that then in actual fact what we do is we buy into one of the big shaping forces in our culture, that is technology. Technology tells us that by a process uh, we can put something in one end, we do certain things and out the other end pops what we want. Our culture is absolutely committed to the idea of cause and effect in terms of processes and so we develop whole technologies and techniques to guarantee outcomes. If that is our approach when it comes to spirituality, in the end it's not so much spirituality that we're brought into but technology and into sterility. Um, just being involved in technique may well do something for us but doesn't really, doesn't help us to deal with what's real, what's true. And one of the distinguishing marks I wanted to make about Christian spirituality and other spiritualities was that it was integrated. That is, it didn't simply talk about having a relationship with God or, or having an experience between you and God and somehow that was cut off from the rest of your life but rather integrated into every aspect of your being or it should be, or it should be. Now of course being a Christian myself I know that the Christian life is one that can often be very inconsistent and Christian history tells us that often the church and Christian people have been inconsistent as well. They have not lived out their spirituality. Another part of the whole idea that spirituality needs to be earthed and integrated is that that comes from the very nature of the Christian God, the God of the Bible. And one of the ways that, that's uh, demonstrated for us is that in the Bible we're actually told a story. Uh, we're told not about a bunch of ideas that we can reflect on and we can personalise, but rather the Bible is actually a story of how God interacts with the world and it's not so much about a spirituality in which we approach God, but rather... The story of the Bible is how God approaches us. There is 
this element of history with Christian belief that is undeniable. It locates itself in the story of the people called Israel and it culminates in the life of a man called Jesus. Now what I want to do today is talk about the special theory of spirituality and in doing that I actually want to earth it somewhere. I want to earth it in the story of the Bible. I want to tell you the story of the Bible at least in a very broad outline way and then I want to focus down into okay, well from these aspects what does a Christian spirituality look like? Now what I'm going to do is uh, just do that on the overhead and primarily, now here's a definition of Christian uh, Christian spirituality is the integration of our inner life with our outward life. Again the idea is we're not separated off somewhere Uh, We're not living two sorts of existence. Our spirituality, our relationship with God is not simply limited to the private sphere or the sacred sphere of our life and the rest of our life is involved with the public area, our work and all of that, but rather the relationship that we have with God when we're Christians is supposed to infiltrate and percolate through every aspect and every relationship of our lives. Now, the diagram that I want to use to talk about the nature of Christian spirituality is this one, I think that's about as good as we're going to get, is this one where we represent uh, God's purpose in creating the world, because spirituality has to be about what God's doing, not primarily about what I do. Spirituality begins with what God is doing. And what the Bible does is it tells us what God is on about. It does involve us. But it's primarily about God. And in this diagram we've got the crown, we've got the figure of the human being and we've got the world and we've got some arrows that go with it. And in this the crown represents God. He's the king of the whole world. And the human being represents human beings and the world, well it's very representational at that point because it does represent the world. Uh, The idea is that that structure, that set of relationships represent what God is on about, how God has made the world, how there's an interrelationship between those three entities. God made human beings and in the beginning we're told in Genesis chapter 1 that he made human beings in his image to rule the world, to fill it and to subdue it. They were to live under God's rule, not under some sort of capricious, um, uh, self-absorbed God but a God who made this incredibly wonderful world, a world where there was order, where there was harmony He made in particular a garden for them to live in. He planted his house and he said you can eat of all the trees in the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, before we get hung up, I was having a discussion with somebody from church uh, just last week. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not about 
if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they got a conscience. You know, they worked out, they'd be able to work out what was good and evil. That's not what it is at all. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not about a conscious conscience. It's about whether who's going to call the shots. That's what it's about. It's about who is going to determine good and evil. It's not necessarily about rule making, it's about who is going to make the rules. Who is going to determine reality? Will it be God or will it be human beings? The choice in eating the fruit, it's an interesting one because disobeying is actually what it's all about. The fruit itself is symbolic of the action of saying, no, you don't know God what's best. You don't know what blessing is all about. And the whole idea of the temptation in Genesis chapter 3 is one in which human beings develop an attitude towards God when they believe that he is miserly, that he is keeping the best from them and in the end they want his job. They want to become like him Not in terms of, this is the irony, isn't it? They were already like him. They were made in his image. Like him in calling the shots. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about, I am going to make the rules. And human human beings are attempted in the very beginning not to live this way, not to live under God's rule. But when they rebel, and that's what, it's, that's what sin is, it's rebellion. When they rebel, then what happens is because they have such a fundamental role within the whole created order, the consequences of that rebellion is absolutely cataclysmic. It's cosmic. It affects the whole cosmos, the whole world. Human beings are made to be the linchpin of the whole created order. They're made to be the lords of the earth under God. But when they decide that they're going to go their own way, everything goes crazy. Uh, in It's a bit like this. Uh, in an arch, a Roman arch, what you'll get is a whole lot of stones and the really important one is the keystone. What the keystone does is it distributes all the forces around the arch. Human beings in creation are like the keystone and when they decide, no, we're going to do what we want to do and you pull that out, then all of a sudden it affects everything else. As a consequence of human rebellion, the world, our relationship with the world, our relationship with each other and our relationship with God is completely stuffed up. The world that we live in is a world that is profoundly affected by that rebellion at every level. In death, decay, frustration, At every level of our lives we experience 
the consequences of rebellion. Now sometimes there are brilliant moments. Sometimes we go and we see a place and we think this is fantastic. And what we need to recognise is that the world and ourselves, we're not as bad as we could be. But we're just getting a faint reflection, a faint hint of how good it might have been. Now the question that uh, poses itself is, if that's what reality is and that's the way the world works, God in a sense has two choices. He can basically scrunch it all up and say, well, that's it. Or he can say, no, I'm not going to let death and rebellion win the day. And so the story of the Bible is the story of God's entering into the very fabric of time and space and wrestling to bring that picture, that structure back into place. To, to redeem, to, to recreate what has been lost. And so when we move on from uh, the story of Adam and Eve, uh, the next big port of call is basically Israel. Uh, and Israel is given a role that's very much like that. Well, uh, Israel isn't big, isn't strong. In fact, she's in slavery. But she's called out of slavery to be God's audiovisual to the rest of the nations. The rest of the nations are caught up in a false spirituality. They're caught up in a spirituality of not worshipping the true and only God, but they're caught up in a spirituality where they're making up reality for themselves. They're making up virtual realities. They're repeating the problem of uh, the original sin. So what God does is he particularly chooses a nation called Israel and Israel's job is to live under God's rule and to show to the rest of the nations what it's like to experience God's rule. So the rest of the nations say, we want what they've got. What they've got is terrific. And the people that God gave to help direct them, if you want a uh, place to look that up, um, a good place to go to would be Exodus 19 verse 6 where it talks about how God has chosen Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Their role was to stand between all the the nations and God and demonstrate to all the nations what it was like to live under God's rule and to bring them into the worship of the true and only God. The people that God gave in particular for uh, Israel to do that was Israel's kings. God like Saul, David, Solomon, Jeroboam, Hezekiah, all those great names. You know, if you want to have a read of them and sort of twist your tongue, uh, try Matthew chapter 1 to get a fair idea of what it is and after about the first quarter and you give up. Um, but they're the kings of Israel and their job was to help God's people live under God's rule. They were supposed to be the ones who would, who would make laws help Israel keep the laws, to, to hold down idolatry, to make sure that she lived according to God's plan. 
Now the problem was it all went awry. It all went wrong. Israel and Israel's kings didn't want to live this way. They did exactly what Adam and Eve did and they rejected God's rule and they wanted to become like the nations. They were supposed to be separate, different, word for that in the Bible is holy, spiritual, but they didn't want to do that. They wanted to be like everybody else, which was an absolute denial of what they were meant to be. They were meant to be different for a reason. They were meant to be separate so that they could be a means of bringing salvation and blessing and hope and a future to the rest of the world. And just as Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden, so the story is that when Israel wanted to be like the nations, God said, you want to be like the nations? Go and be with them. And he kicked them out of the land and they went to the nations. Now the prophet's reflection on all of this, this is the story of Israel, the story of God's people, was this, that no matter what advantages Israel had, God gave them the law, Ten Commandments and a whole bunch of other laws, stuff to do with birds' nests, if you want to look it up, and what to do with mould on the walls. So it's fairly detailed. The laws, the sacrifices, the temple, the priests, a whole bunch of stuff. No matter what he gave them, what happened in the end was it didn't work. And when the prophets looked at this, they said... The problem isn't what God is giving us. The problem's here. The problem's with the human heart. The problem is, no matter what advantages and what privileges we're given, it's never enough because the big problem is here. If, if, if bringing blessing, if bringing this, this model, this way of living to the earth, is going to be dependent upon us, it is never, ever going to happen. What's needed is a brand new beginning, a new creation. And that's where Jesus comes in. Uh, When you read one of the Gospels, what you're actually getting is the story of Israel told all over again in a condensed way and the story that you're getting there is where Israel failed where the kings failed where Adam and Eve failed here we've got one who by absolute dogged obedience by trusting in God at his word by having a relationship with God here is one one human being who succeeds at what it's meant to be, to be a human being. Nobody else does it. One of the things that we need to understand is that the term that we have in the Bible, Son of God, is not a term that's used exclusively of Jesus. Uh, In Luke chapter uh, 3, when you get one of these one of these great long lists of the family tree of Jesus, it ends with and Adam, who was the Son of God. Son of God is basically a job description. And the job description is this, to rule over the world and to bring it under 
submission to God's rule. Israel was called the son of God. When Moses spoke to Pharaoh, uh, he said to Pharaoh, God says, let my firstborn son go. What did it mean that Israel was a son? It meant that Israel's job was this. And when every king of Israel was um, crowned, probably the psalm that was sung at the coronation was Psalm 2, which says, Today you have become my son and I have become your father. With you I am well pleased. The kings were called sons of God. Why? Well, it's because this is what they were supposed to do. But all of the sons of God failed except for one, the true son of God, Jesus. Now where does that put us? And where does that put us in the story in terms of spirituality? Well, it puts us here. Christians believe that the centre of spirituality is trusting in Jesus. And the centre of spirituality is sonship. And because sonship at that point isn't a, so much a term of gender as a job description, it's basically meaning that when people become Christians they become children of God and they're involved in a father and son business. And this is the business. That picture is a picture of the business that God has for his people, for his children, for his son. To live in the world, to live under his rule and to fill the world and to subdue it. The centre of Christian spirituality is adoption. To understand our identity as children of God, heirs. And that's not just a cosy relationship with God, that's actually a calling, that's a vocation, that's a purpose, that's a shape to our living. That's a spirituality, something that has a definite shape, something that has a definite process, something that is earthed in the very reality in which we live. It's not simply some experience that occurs in our private life and doesn't get translated into anything else because it involves our relationship with God, it involves our relationship with each other and it involves our relationship with the world. True spirituality is integrated and it integrates our interior life and our exterior life. What does it mean to have a spirituality that, that develops a relationship with God? Well, first of all, it's, it's dependent upon the Word. It's dependent upon the Bible, this book. Because what this book says is that we don't seek after God. The amazing thing is that God seeks after us. We're not the first to speak to God. God actually speaks to us and addresses us in Jesus Christ. God comes into the world. If he waited for us to make the first move, nothing would be happening. But God speaks... 
God has spoken and God continues to speak and the way that he speaks is through the Bible. He speaks to us and he tells us what he's like. It tells us, it explains to us what his personality is like. It's not guesswork. We're given a series of stories that, that express how he has responded to certain situations so that we understand his heart and his mind and what he's on about. And we find out that he's actually done an incredible thing and he's become a human being. So that, so that he not only shows us what we should be like but he shows us so closely what he is like. What it is to see God in the flesh. What it is to see the true Son of God who lives completely under God's rule. And what God calls us to be like and to be involved in. God addresses us. God speaks to us. He tells us how we can become related to him, how we can join his family and how we can live together and what his purposes for the world are. Now God not only addresses us but also the amazing thing is that we're called to address God. One of the stunning differences in the ancient world that the Romans picked up between Jews and Christians and themselves had to do with the whole idea of prayer. In the Roman world, prayer basically amounted to this. It was either absolute silence or it was somebody who was praying for you, a priest, who would utter something that was a whole lot more like a magical formula. That is, you had to have exactly the right words in exactly the right place and people were drilled and drilled and drilled with being able to pray so that they would get the formula right. What shocked the Romans and the Greeks was that Christians and Jews addressed God as if he was a person, as if he was interested, as if there was a possibility of a relationship. You see, our world's been so influenced by the the Christian idea of who God is, that we almost take that for granted. But that was a novelty in the ancient world. Not just flags fluttering in the breeze, not just paying lip service, not some, okay, we pray this time of day or that time of day. No, 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 no. But a God who, who was intimately involved in the very fabric of the world and also involved in the very fabric of their lives. A God who related, not only sought, but sought to have a relationship and entered into relationship with people. A Christian spirituality is about that. It's the quality of a relationship. And one other thing about Christian I want to talk about is God is not a priority. One of the things that we don't say is say, oh, God's right up the top of the priorities of our lives. God isn't the top of the priorities of our lives. God is our life. We don't fit him in somewhere. Yeah, of course, when it comes to maybe allocating time or something like that, sure, I mean, there, there might have to be some prioritising of time. But, but if we fall into the habit of thinking that somehow God has to be top of the pecking order, we've missed the whole idea of what Christian spirituality is truly about. 
It's not about adding God to our life. It's understanding that life is in God and in Christ. Now, not only is it a matter of having a right relationship with God, it's not only a matter of uh, listening to his word, it's also a matter of having a right relationship with other human beings. That was one of the things that got completely stuffed up with all. I don't think I have to go through the news items of today to be able to show you exactly what has happened in our world. For all of the education, for all of the great ideas that have been around, we live in a world that's absolutely fragmented because of our selfishness, our stupidity, our folly, our disagreements. The enormous thing that symbolised a bringing back together of human beings in the ancient world uh, was that, that the way that the world used to be divided according to the Jewish way of thinking was themselves, the Jews, and everybody else, the Gentiles. The extraordinary thing that happened in Jesus Christ was that so many of the boundary markers, the things that distinguished them them from each other, suddenly became less important and through Jesus' death, through his dying for their sin, God made a way back to himself that was independent uh, of ethnicity, the privilege of uh, uh, what race you were born into, independent of whether you were obedient to a set of law codes or anything like that, that suddenly it was simply a matter of understanding that you were not right with God. That you've been living without God and you've been living on your own reserves and your own ability and you've been making up virtual realities and you're saying, well, if, God were, if I was God, I'd do this. Or just plain ignoring him. And realising that it was only through Jesus' death that you could begin a life with God. Suddenly, everything that distinguished the Jew from the Gentile was obliterated by what they had in common in terms of their sin and also in how they could be right with God. It was by faith in Jesus' death and following him. Now that symbolised a bringing back together of of humanity. Uh, We looked at uh, another verse last week uh, from Galatians 3.28 that says there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male male or female for all are one in Christ. That there is in Jesus the possibility of a bringing back together. We haven't done very well sometimes, have we? Um, but that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be living an exemplary life. Our spirituality is not one that is, can be independent of how we treat people. It's not a spirituality that sort of is off in the clouds and we can have these wonderful thoughts, but then I can hate you or I can simply dismiss you. That happens, but that's not what's supposed to happen. The Bible calls it sin. 
God speaks to us at those points and says, that's wrong, you need to repent. How can you dismiss a brother or a sister that I've died for? And also there's a relationship with the world. There still are these arrows going on. There's still an involvement with the world. Uh, on the way in here there's a, there's a table um, that's being manned and uh, people are asking for, uh, for money to help save a... Save a uh, was it a lake or a swamp? I forget which one it was. Let's call it a lake, it sounds better. Um, are we worried about that or should we just get on with the job of, uh, of saving souls? You know, that, that's the really important thing and we shouldn't really worry about the other stuff because really it's all going to be wrapped up, uh, scrunched up, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and we can start again anyway. That's, that's not an option. That's not what God wants us to do. That's not what God wanted Israel to do. God wanted Israel to be exemplary. God wants us involved in the world. God wants Christians, I should say, with the world in a way that's exemplary. I know that some of you aren't Christians. God wants his people and God wants Christian spirituality to be one in which Christians are demonstrating a commitment to this world. To live out Christ wherever they are, whatever they're doing. To care about the poor, to care about the needy, to care about this world, to care about how we use its resources. Not because we're being trendy, but because God has placed us in a physical world and is committed to physicality. He's committed to a real world, not some disembodied existence. And the only way that we can really demonstrate that we're committed to a physical universe and ultimate reality that way is demonstrating that this, this matters now. The way that we treat this now. That the work that you do, the work that you're training for is part of your spirituality if you're a Christian. It's not irrelevant. It's fundamental. Not only because through it you can do work for God but because work is fundamental in terms of living in a physical reality. And not only because of that but because as Christians you should be part of the humanising part of the workplace. The workplace nowadays is often described by by people who, who are doing work out there. I don't do work out there, I do work sort of with with God's people. But work out there is people are not supposed to really connect with one another. Uh, They're supposed to have a working relationship but they're not allowed really to get involved in each other's lives. That's not good enough for the Christian. The Christian should be the centre of a community at work. Part of the person who, who wants to find out the joys the, 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 the dashed hopes the deaths the disappointments the wonderful news of new babies and uh, just people having a great time that they become the centre of the community and, 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 and enable the workplace to be far more than just simply a place that has good production levels or is efficient 
but somewhere where there's life and there's something beyond, a purpose beyond, mere the production of something. And there's three other things uh, finally that I want to talk about, not in terms of a relationship with the world uh, but uh, in one sense three elements of Christian spirituality. Christian spirituality always has these three elements. Let me ask you a question about cars. Actually I got rung up yesterday by a mate of mine uh, on his mobile. He said, um, he said oh, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit embarrassed to ask this but um, uh, how do you drive a manual car? Uh, his automatic had died and the uh, mechanic had given him, given him a, a manual car and, and he was sitting in the car and he said I don't know how to do this so I had to basically go through the whole process of, he hadn't driven one since he was uh, 17 and that was about well that was about 17 years ago so uh, it was a long time between drinks so let me ask you a question about a car it's not about a manual what does a car need to work I exclude VWs at this point, okay? Uh, does a car need water or oil or petrol? What does it need? All three. That's exactly right. For a real Christian spirituality, here are the three things that you need. You don't choose between one or the other. It's right belief. Okay? What we've talked about today to a large extent, is right belief. Understanding the way that the world was intended. Understanding what God is doing in the world. Understanding how the story of what God is doing in the world reaches a climax in Jesus. And how Jesus begins to address the heart problem in human beings. True spirituality begins with right belief. Or that's a component at least. Another thing that true spirituality uh, needs is right action. Just believing is not good enough. Just putting water in your car, you're not going to go too far. Right action is also a part of true spirituality. It needs to be worked out in the real world. It needs to be worked out in relationships. It needs to be worked out in terms of whatever we're doing. And the third component is right-heartedness. Right belief, right action, right-heartedness. Right-heartedness means two things. Christians are not just heads and hands. They're hearts as well. Our, Our spirituality affects all of our life. Every aspect of it. Our emotions. But not only that, where God begins the change of spirituality is in the heart. We've got to constantly remember that this, this needs to be addressed first and foremost. It's the heart that will lead us astray. True Christian spirituality realises that spirituality first and foremost is an issue of the heart, it's right belief and then it's also right action. And those three things together. I've talked about Christian spirituality. Uh, I've talked about what God's great big plan for the world is. 
Uh, there may be some of you that would like to take issue with what I've said or talk about some of those things a bit further. I'm going to hang around after. I'd really enjoy the opportunity of being able to talk to you. Maybe you disagree with me. That's fine. Um, it'll be good to talk about it.